Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. This episode is supported by Audible.com, a leading provider of audiobooks with over a quarter million titles. For a free 30-day trial, go to audible.com slash brookings and sign up today. Thanks, Audible. My guest in the studio today is Phil Cly. He is a United States Marine Corps veteran who served in Iraq's Anbar province from January 2007 to February 2008 as a public affairs officer. In 2014, his short story collection, Redeployment, won the National Book Award for Fiction. In 2015, he received the Marine Corps Heritage Foundation's James Webb Award for Fiction dealing with U.S. Marines or or Marine Corps life. And now he is the author of a new Brookings essay titled The Citizen Soldier, Moral Risk, and the Modern Military. Also stay tuned in this episode for another installment of Steve Hess Stories. Phil, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to, and I'm very excited to talk to you about the new essay that we have just published, The Citizen Soldier. Uh, But before we get to that, I can't miss this opportunity to talk to a National Book Award-winning author. Uh, Redeployment came out a couple of years ago uh, to critical acclaim. I read it then. I reread most of it uh, in the last week or so. Um, I'm I'm interested in the fact that it has stories of uh, soldiers and Marines in, in combat, but it also has a lot of stories of people not in combat, either on the home front. You have a, a State Department uh, person featured and others. Um, but they're all kind of war stories. Is, is that significant that a war story doesn't have to be set in a combat situation? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, the, the military is this huge organization and, and the, you know, the kind of frontline um, infantrymen uh, is is one piece of what the military does, but there's 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 a lot of other pieces, and particularly when you're talking about a war like Iraq, um, you know, in in, in different stages uh, of, of the conflict, um, it can be really interesting to look at at uh, uh, some of the other things that were happening. You know, whether it's uh, somebody in the State Department trying to do reconstruction or um, you know, a mortuary affairs specialist who's, who's responsible mm-hmm. for preparing the bodies of the dead to be sent home. And then, you know, the other thing about that is, is um, you know, it's not just the things that happen overseas, but uh, I think war experience stays with people. It, it the, you know, the way that they think about it changes. I, I always go back to uh, this bit in uh, Carl Marlantis's book, "What It's Like to Go to War." Uh, Marlantis uh, wrote a novel uh, called Matterhorn. He was he was uh, loved it, loved uh, it. Yeah, wonderful book. Um, he was a Marine in Vietnam, and in "What It's Like to Go to War," he says, you know, if you asked a uh, you know twenty-year-old combat veteran at the gas station what it feels like to to kill a man. Um, you know, his probable angry answer, if he's being honest, am I allowed to curse on this podcast? You, yes. All right, well, then let's go for it. <laughs> let's his go probable for it. angry answer will be not a f***ing thing. It doesn't feel like a f***ing thing. Right. Um, but Marlentis then goes on. He says, you know, if you ask that same guy the same question 40 years later, you might get a very different answer. And, you know, for him, it's not just about who that guy is, what he experienced. It's also about the community that he had around him, uh, what's happened in that intervening time and how he's been able to process that experience as part of a community uh, and how they, you know, sort of bring somebody along. And so uh, a lot of it is, is 
uh, a lot of the book is set in the United States. And, mm-hmm. and of course, I mean, this is, I think, you know, one of the links to some of the pieces in the essays uh, where I talk about the way that kind of unfolding events in Iraq have forced veterans of my generation to, to really start asking themselves some very hard questions. I, as I was rereading Redeployment and the stories are in, having just read your Brookings essay multiple times, uh, I was struck by some of the connections from um, the fictional portrayals to the, the nonfiction. You actually reference Karl Marlantz in uh, the Brookings essay. You talk a lot about um, soldiers uh, and Marines coming back to society, um, getting asked questions like that. And I want to get back to some of those uh, here in a minute, but let's stay on redeployment uh, for a second because uh, one of the very first lines in the very first story, which is titled Redeployment, uh, the character says, the thinking comes later when they give you the time. See, it's not a straight shot back from war to the Jacksonville Mall. And this uh, veteran is back home, has just come back home with his Marine unit. Uh, he sees his wife. He sees his dog. Uh, that theme of having time to think later uh, is very powerful in all the stories in redeployment. And it actually comes through in the Brookings essay. Can you talk about that idea of um, time to think? Yeah, and I, I, I don't think it's just something um, specific to war experience. Uh, my, my, my wife and I had a, a baby uh, recently, congrats, uh, our, first, our first son. Thank you very much. Um, uh, you know, I don't, if you'd asked me in the first week uh, what that meant, uh, I probably wouldn't have had much of an answer for you, uh, and you would have seen a very uh, frantic version of myself. Um, and I think that, you know, in general, anything really important to somebody, and war experience tends to be very important to its participants. Uh, for a whole variety of reasons, even 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 aside from you know issues of combat and, and, and trauma that that kind of tend to get the most focus, um, untangling what that means that that's always going to be a process that takes time. Um, and uh, you know, <laughs> I spent four and a half years writing the book. In some ways, um, uh, writing the book was was one way for me to figure out for myself how to think about Iraq and how to think about America um, in, in, in relationship to these wars. Um, and, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't come in the moment. It's, it's fascinating. You have, a, uh, I think it's 11 or maybe it's a dozen stories. Your main characters are Marines in combat, Marines coming, uh, coming home. You have the mortuary affairs uh, personnel that you mentioned. Uh, you have a, uh, a veteran who's at college dealing with the college system. You have a priest. Uh, you, have, um, you have field artillery, which I appreciate because I used to be in the field artillery. You have all these different kinds of, of characters. Um, and, and you, uh, as we know, you were uh, a public affairs officer. How did you get into um, the heart and soul of so many different kinds of characters for these stories? Well, it was it was a long process writing the book, and and um, I uh, 
I'd, you know, I was a public affairs officer, so I spent time with a lot of different types of Marines and soldiers and sailors, right? Uh, I, you know, during my deployment to Iraq, I did everything from sit in on the battle update assessment briefs, went to General Odierno from time to time to, you know, go out on patrol with infantry guys, or I'd hang out with mortuary affairs specialists. So I'd spent a lot of time with, with a lot of different types of folks overseas. Um, and then I, I did a lot of research, right? I... I read a lot of books. I read a lot of journalism. I, I reached out and I interviewed people. Um, you know, when I write a story where I didn't know uh, necessarily that much about the subject, uh, you know, if I'm writing about an artillery unit, I'd, you know, I'd ask my friend Maurice, who was in the artillery, hey, you know, how does this work? Um, and so, that, I mean, that was one piece of it in terms of getting, trying to get the facts right and getting, trying to get the feel right. Um, paying attention to the language people use. The other thing is um, uh, the uh, uh, there are things that, that kind of counted for research to me that would be a little bit further afield. So, um, you know, if I'm writing a story about a uh, foreign service officer, I read a memoir by a foreign service officer called We Met Well. I read Special Inspector General for Iraq Reconstruction Reports. Uh, I, I talked to a foreign service officer. I talked to a soldier who did civil affairs. I uh, interviewed a couple uh, soldiers who had uh, deployed to the region that I ended up setting um, that story. I also read uh, The Good Soldier Schweck, uh, which is a uh, World War I novel by a Czech anarchist um, that felt like it had the right tone. Uh, you know, for the, the one of the stories I write from the perspective of a Catholic chaplain, and I read a, a book called... Um, Diary of a Country Priest by Georges Bernanos. Uh, it's a beautiful book, and it's it deals with, I think, all the kind of moral issues, or a lot of the moral issues that I wanted to confront in in the story that I was writing, even though it doesn't deal with war at all. Uh, and so I think, you know, kind of trying to draw on as many sources as, as possible, and then having people read the work and tell me where I'd screwed up. Well, it's, uh, it's a fascinating connection, then, from what you just said there to the Brookings essay, which is so full of um, references to philosophers and uh, war literature and all kinds of um, fiction and nonfiction writing. Um, and we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, but on redeployment, and I don't think I'm overstating the case here, I see it as part of uh, what I would think of as the great literature of war, um, especially uh, the Afghanistan and Iraq wars, um, thinking in terms of uh, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, Fobbit, uh, the nonfiction book you just mentioned, We Meant Well, um, also one I've read recently called Run, Don't Walk, um, about uh, physical therapy at Walter Reed Army Medical Center. Um, can you recommend some other um, titles, uh, fiction or nonfiction, uh, about these wars in particular? Yeah, I mean, you know, those are those are great books. I think um, Matt Gallagher's uh, Youngblood is a novel that just came out that's excellent. Um, there's uh, Eric Fair's Consequence. Um, Fair was a interrogator uh, at Abu Ghraib, um, later uh, a whistleblower at um, about torture, and that's a, a very unsettling, excellent book. I think um, uh, you know uh, Dexter Filkins' The Forever War. I think. Um, uh, the Good Soldiers by David Finkel, Black Hearts by Jim Frederick. Uh, I, I really do. I always recommend the Special Inspector General for Iraq Reconstruction Report, Hard Lessons, is, is um, 
really worthwhile. Um, you know, there, I just read a, a great uh, book of um, uh, poetry, uh, Lives of Griswold. It's poetry paired with um, photographs um, from Seamus Murphy. Um, and it's Land Days Told by Afghan Women. Uh, it's a really interesting book. And, and uh, Griswold, can, you know, puts those in context. I mean, there's just, there's a, there's a, a real wealth of, of really tremendous work um, uh, being put out there. Brian Kastner has done some, both of his books are, are excellent. Uh, Shaded Black by Jessica Goodell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I could probably go right. on for a well, while. And we could, we could also, now we can connect uh, this body of work to uh, the pre-existing body of work uh, about America and Americans in war in general, or not even Americans in war. Um, I mean, from Red Badge of Courage to um, Carl Marlante's Matterhorn that we just mentioned. I'm also thinking in terms of, you know, with the old breed, red, uh, Thin Red Line, um, the Centurions about the French in, at Dien Bien Phu. Um, are there are there new titles about uh, previous wars uh, that that you've seen that you are looking at? Oh, um, you know, there was a book. Uh, there's a, a French novel called uh, it, the title in, in English is The Great Swindle, um, which is about World War One, and it's about the. Um, uh, it starts in World War One and then has two characters who run a kind of scam involving war memorials that I, th- I thought was excellent. Um, uh, there's a book um, by Daniel Torday uh, called the, the Last Flight of Poxel West, I believe is the title, uh, which is a really interesting um, uh, World War II book. Um, I'm trying to think of, of other, uh, you know, I, I, I've, uh, I've also been reading, you know, I mean, one of the more just really fascinating books about another war uh, that I read is, is uh, there's a Colombian journalist, Juanita Leon, who wrote a book um, uh, called, um, it's Pais Diploma, it's a, a country of bullets um, in, in uh, the English and it's uh, it's just a really superb, superb book about uh, the the, uh, conflict with the paramilitaries in the FARC and and the Colombian government uh, in the early 2000s. Well, I uh, highly recommend to listeners that they add redeployment to their their reading list of of war and conflict. It's it's terrific. So um, I guess thank you for writing it. Oh, my God. I forgot one of of my things. Yeah. Jean Amery, I don't know how to pronounce his, uh, John, uh, uh, his name, Jean Amery, Amery. Um, uh, uh, it's a book of essays uh, that uh, he was a uh, he's a survivor of, of Auschwitz, and um, about I think it's like 20 years after the war, he wrote a series of essays, uh, and it's called At the Mind's Limits, um, and it's it's just. Just a tremendous, tremendous piece of work. Um, talks about his experiences and trying to explain exactly what that did to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's an essay there on torture. He was he was you know, part of a resistance movement and he was tortured. And, and he kind of goes through and explains uh, in, in really incredible and, and unsettling detail 
um, how that affected him. And now, here's another installment of Steve Hess stories. Steve talks about the tumultuous year 1968 and how he ended up on the campaign trail with Spiro Agnew. What happened in 68 was I had proposed to Nixon that I travel with him and keep a diary of everything he's doing right next to him. Uh, if he is elected, I turn over all of these notes to him. If he is defeated, I get the notes to write a book. The argument being, of course, other people who write books have an axe to grind or a journalist really not inside. He liked the idea, uh, but of course, instantly, all those around him hated the idea uh, and said, no, you can't do that. I can understand their point of view. Some of them wanted to write their own books. So I went back up to Harvard and the phone rang uh, in very early September, right after the official opening of the campaign, and it was Haldeman. The vice presidential candidate, Spiro Agnew, had already said a number of things that were potentially disastrous. He was always had his foot in his mouth. And Haldeman said, the boss, RN, whatever he calls it, wants you to get on the plane with Spiro Agnew. And since I wanted to be in the administration, I said, okay. And that, that very day, the, the Baltimore Sun, he was governor of Maryland, and the Baltimore Sun, his leading paper, had an editorial saying they're sending Hess and you better listen to him. Of course, a proud man who's governor, that you know, sort of ended our relationship in a working sense almost as soon as it started. But he couldn't fire me, and I wasn't going to quit. So I traveled 60,000 miles around the country with, with Agnew. These were good times in the terms of a campaign that had lots of money to spend. Uh, and I'd write a speech every day, and he'd give another speech, that he, his own speech. Uh, but that's the way it went. What we could do, there was another person said to that time, John's, Sears, the sort of the political one, if I was the substantive one. Uh, and we did ultimately cut the Agnew campaign from seven days a week to five days a week. So we, we performed a service uh, of some sort uh, in, in that way. I should say, by the way, that I had no idea of any Agnew corruption. But the Wall Street Journal had had a great reporter in Maryland investigating and thought that perhaps there was something there. And I had never asked a reporter to tell anything secret. All right, it was Al Otten, who was the bureau chief, Alan J. Otten. They were very great friends. And I said, forgive me for doing this, but I've been asked to go on the Agnew campaign. Is he a crook? And Otten said, we've been investigating and investigating, and we can't prove it. So I went, I went with him. So the campaign was over. And uh, then it picks up the story how uh, I, I joined Pat Moynihan in the White House. But that was my 1968. My 1968 was traveling around in a sort of pleasant but useless state with the candidate for vice president of the United States. You can listen to more Steve Hess stories on our SoundCloud channel. Thanks again to Audible.com for supporting our podcast. Audible is offering a free 30-day trial for our listeners. Just go to audible.com slash brookings from your computer to get started on listening to audiobooks across all genres of fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals. Once you've signed up from your computer, it's easy to listen and buy more books on your phone. It's no surprise that I recommend that you download and listen to Phil Cly's Redeployment, a riveting collection of stories whose characters will take you to the front lines of the Iraq War and behind the lines as they return home. You can also find other riveting war titles such as Matterhorn by Carl Marlantz. 
and With the Old Breed at Peleliu in Okinawa by E.B. Sledge. Maybe start your own collection with a free 30-day trial at audible.com slash brookings. So let's talk about the Brookings essay, um, The Citizen Soldier, Moral Risk and the Modern Military. You, you write that joining the United States Marine Corps, quote, isn't just about exposing yourself to the trials and risks of combat. It's also about exposing yourself to moral risk. What is moral risk and what does that mean? <laughs> um, that's what, uh, I mean, it's, it's <laughs> sort of what I was writing the essay in, in, uh, in order to, to figure out for myself. I think that, you know, we, you sign up, I mean, most people I think sign up with, with the hope of, being part of an institution that's that's doing something good in the world that that um, uh, you know they'll be putting their shoulders to the wheel along with a lot of other people and and advancing the causes um, that like like to see the sort of ideals of American democracy and I think for for particularly in, in the military, but really in terms of anything, you know, to, to be a human being is to be a part of a lot of different institutions with um, uh, uh, whose who's, who's effects, you, you know, you, you can't always see what's going to happen when you act in the world, I guess, uh, is... is um, is the way that I would put it, that um, in, in a time of, of crisis or, or um, in a time when, you know, sort of some kind of political action feels like it needs to be taken, uh, it's, it's very difficult to know um, what the chain of events that you're a part of uh, is going to result in, and, and, and sometimes that might even be much more, um, you know, uh, there might be sort of much more unanticipated effects. I think of, you know, it's kind of the most simple example would be a guy in a, um, in a convoy manning the, manning the machine gun. I've, I have a friend, um, Gavin Covite, who wrote a short story for, uh, an anthology of veterans fiction called Fire and Forget. And he wrote it as a choose-your-own-adventure story, right? And it's basically you're at the turret, uh, and there is a car speeding up to your convoy, and what do you do, right? Is it a scared or spooked um, Iraqi driver? Is it a suicide bomb, uh, suicide bomber, uh, you know, if, uh, you know, do you fire, do you not? What what steps do you take um, to try and, you know, protect protect your friends, but also avoid killing innocent people? Uh, and I think that uh, in war, particularly, uh, those kind of decisions that have to be made uh, in the absence of, of perfect knowledge of what's going to happen, you know, those those occur all the time. And they occur in the immediate moment in that kind of example, uh, and they also occur sort of 
uh, in terms of a, kind of the much larger scope of uh, of history and and you know the sort of policies that you're trying to enact without perfect knowledge of of whether even with the best of intentions they're going to lead to a better outcome. Right. You you open the essay uh, with this scene of you at officer candidate school uh, with the Marine Corps drill instructor. Um, I can see the scene in my mind, yelling at the recruits. Uh, but instead of acting like uh, Gunnery Sergeant Hartman from the movie Full Metal Jacket, uh, he's he's asking you more philosophical questions. Uh, it, it was it was it was really interesting. Yeah, there was one guy, and you know I don't know exactly his history, but p- people had said that he was he was a veteran of um, the Iraq invasion, and that. Uh, that he'd killed somebody with his hands or he'd bashed a Iraqi soldier's head in with a radio or something like that. And I don't know whether that was just the kind of the scuttlebutt um, uh, or uh, just something that somebody had made up in, in, in relationship to the, the kind of posture that he took to us. But, you know, whereas most, most of the times during inspections, you know, why did you join the Marine Corps to lead Marines? You know, this is very sort of straightforward and simple. He'd ask us, you know, he'd ask guys questions like, you know, do you think you could order your men into an assault um, where you know some of them are going to die, right? Or if he'd be talking to one of the guys who had a contract to become a pilot, you know, do you think you could bomb bomb a building knowing you might kill, you know, children and women and children? Uh, <laughs> you know, he gets to me and he's, and he's you know, involved thing where it's like, you know, you, you've called in air support and they, and then you, you, you think there's insurgents there and then there's no insurgents. There's just this dead Iraqi and there's a kid at his side and, you know, the guy's brains are out on the pavement, but his leg is still twitching and the kid doesn't understand that his father's dead. And he's asking you why his father won't get up. And what are you going to say to that Iraqi kid? And it was, uh, it was, you know, the kind of question that you, you don't necessarily – there is no right answer to. And I, I appreciated that there was somebody in the midst of all that where, you know, a lot of it is, is kind of very uh, rah-rah, you know, uh, you know, pure aggression, uh, that there was somebody asking us to think about um, these sort of hard choices that, that, that uh, people find themselves – facing in war. Also in the essay, you, you write uh, in this, this kind of relates, I think, to what you were saying earlier about how uh, those who join the institution can always see the effect that they're having uh, in the organization, in the world. You write that in some ways, joining the military is an act of faith in one's country, an act of faith that the country will use your life well. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Sure. I mean, you know the the it, it's just amazing to me how how much depends on where you get sent what kind of leadership you had um you know you could even be in in roughly the same place with the same situation and you know in one unit led by uh, an overly aggressive buffoon in one place in one unit led by a really sort of thoughtful, strong leader, it'll be a radically different, different experience for those troops and, and, uh, and what kind of choices they'll have to confront. Um, but you know, I mean, the, the, the guys who were leaving Iraq, 
when I got there, a lot of them were just so down on the entire mission because they'd they'd been in Iraq through 2006. It had been incredibly violent in Ambar province. They hadn't seen any progress. And, you know, when I left, everybody left feeling like we were winning because the violence had just plummeted in Ambar. Um, and, you know, even beyond that, I, you know, I mentioned in the essay, there's a talking to a, a reservist, actually, whose unit was going to get called up for deployment, and they were they, they were either going to go to Liberia and they were going to help um, uh, with the response to the Ebola crisis there, uh, which is, you know, a pretty uh, wonderful mission. It's, it's the sort of thing I think is very few people would find objectionable. Uh, and the other choice was they were they they were going to get sent to do um, uh, to, to be at Guantanamo Bay, um, and just how you know how different the re- responses they're likely to get when they get home, depending on which deployment they get sent on, um, is you know it's pretty stark, I'm sure. But uh, you know the real issue is not. The choices of those individual soldiers, but but rather the collective choices that we make as a country. There there are many tensions in this essay. I mean, from the title itself, "Citizen Soldier," those two concepts are in tension. Um, and I think for me, it ex- it really gets to this idea of um, the U.S. public uh, not having to think too much about war and those who wage war on our behalf. Um, and you have this this huge section in the essay that's just wonderful history about um, citizen soldiers and George Washington's attitudes about them and the Hessian mercenaries and uh, through Ulysses Grant and what he had to say about them and Secretary of State Breckinridge in the early 20th century. Um, it's a really it's a great uh, great history there. Uh, but in, tr- in terms of this disconnect uh, between the public and and the military. Um, why is that a problem, that the public doesn't have to think too much about war? Because the political decisions that we make here have huge effects overseas. Um, you know, I think you can see it um, very much in the current election cycle. When, when people are disconnected from, uh, you know, what we're doing in terms of military policy, when they're not likely to feel like they're on the hook for it. Um, you know, I think of uh, Stanley McChrystal talks has complained that the, the American people don't have skin in the game. But I think that, you know, um, beyond the fact that, you know, n- n- nobody's likely to get called up uh, in a draft to go serve overseas, but rather, but even beyond that, they're not even... Um, uh, being asked to consider uh, whether their elected representative, um, you know, voted for or against uh, uh, our current military policy, because we're still operating on the authorization of military force from previous to the Iraq, uh, from before the Iraq War. That, you know, when the questions of what we do with the military are so abstract and so removed from the consciousness of the American public, it's much much easier for people to just kind of vote for what feels good or accept, you know, really, really empty uh, rhetoric 
from from politicians and and, and elected officials, and and that I think is is dangerous because I don't think it's likely to lead to uh, well thought out uh, military policy. But if we, the the civilians who are uh, disconnected from the military, actually have no cost to pay, especially if we don't personally know a member of the military, let's say, who has uh, been injured, who who we've lost, um, and most of us do not know a uh, the majority of Americans do not know um, service members, especially veterans. If there's no cost to pay, um, how can that uh, that sort of divide be bridged? I mean, that's one of the questions that I keep asking myself. I think, you know, I think there's, I think there's there's a variety of things that we can do. Um, uh, I mean, trying to, to, to find ways to help, you know, invite people into a conversation about these things is, is, is one of the reasons that I write. It's one of the reasons that a lot of the veterans I know write. Um, but beyond that, I think that uh, there are there are ways that the the government operates. Um, you know, I, and again, I mentioned the authorization of military force, where we let ourselves off the hook from having to think about uh, think about these things. Um, and I think we need to to push back uh, against the sort of uh, perpetual war business as usual mentality. Not not out of a, a kind of pacifist anti-war perspective, but just because I think that that. Uh, um, if we're going to be killing people overseas, it needs to be subject to a lot more scrutiny, and we need to have mechanisms in place to ensure that that scrutiny happens. Let's let's focus uh, again on on veterans, on those who have served. You you talk in the essay about um, the contract, uh, if not the broken contract between society and veterans. Um, how does that contract uh, be? How can that contract be repaired? Uh, and moreover. Does the country, does the society owe a debt to veterans? Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I think that, I think that it does. Um, I, I also think that uh, certainly, uh, modern generation veterans uh, aren't waiting around for that, you know, that debt to be paid necessarily. I don't think it's. Um, I don't think that a really robust public reckoning with these wars is is likely to happen um, because it's a painful, difficult subject. Um, but I think that there are many things we can do, and, and you know, the end of the essay talks about a lot of the ways that uh, veterans have been trying to kind of build organizations and and contribute to you know the institutions of American life that that. Uh, that hopefully make us a kind of stronger, uh, stronger country, uh, and that you know that that goes from you know whether it's it's people working in government or um, veterans who have uh, participated in organizations like Team Rubicon or the Mission Continues, which are veteran-led uh, uh, NGOs. The Team Rubicon tries to harness. Uh, the skills that veterans have um, in in the aftermath of natural disasters. Um, uh, the mission continues offers fellowships for veterans to go out into communities and 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 work in those communities in in a whole variety of different ways. Um, and there's you know there's a kind of a million other uh, other examples. Um, 
of veterans going out and and, <laughs> and just kind of looking for institutions and organizations that they can either form or be a part of to to try and and you know rectify some of the 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 problems that they see in the world you know i i i know one one veteran that I talked to when he went into government, he said, uh, well, you know, I like, uh, I like fixing problems. So I figured I'd go into government because there'd be no end of really big problems for me to, <laughs> to try and, uh, try and, um, you know, <laughs> work on and, and hopefully move the needle slightly. Yeah. I really, I really love in this essay, how you, uh, you open with a very personal anecdote and then you weave throughout, um, the the story your personal story the history um the philosophy um the literature and then uh you you go into the iraq war itself uh, then you come back out and you talk about the reintegration of of, of veterans into into society and in some um you know many veterans do suffer from ptsd and there is a um, um uh, there's some incidents of um uh, suicide amongst veterans, but there's also these veterans who are, like, as you say, with Team Rubicon, the mission continues, and others who are um, continuing to um, contribute to each other um, and to society as well. Uh, I just think that's a fascinating thing. And it's not necessarily a, a dichotomy between, you know, the sort of, you know, kind of damaged veterans and the veterans who are, you know, out contributing to society. Um, I think we, we, we have a tendency to to view, uh, you know, somebody with PTSD is like some sort of basket case. I have, you know, I have friends with PTSD who are tremendously uh, productive um, members of society and doing really amazing work. I think that um, it's uh, the, you know, the image that we have is 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 maybe not the appropriate one. It's not that these these issues uh, aren't real. And I actually talk about the case of of Clay Hunt, who was a really kind of amazing uh, Marine who had worked with, with Team Rubicon. He'd, he'd um, been part of Storm the Hill and pushing for uh, veteran services who ultimately ended up taking his own life. That, that you know, somebody um, can be both uh, really struggling and having a very difficult time with, with, with the aftermath of war and also with the, um, you know, he had a lot of difficulty getting the, the kind of aid from the, the VA that he needed. Uh, and yet also be just this kind of really inspiring um, and, and productive person who kind of, you know, <laughs> you know, looking looking at, at, at what somebody like that achieved uh, in the time that they, they were alive, uh, uh, you know, kind of makes you feel ashamed. Um, and so, you know, that, that those things coexist and, and that, that sort of that image of, of kind of uh, a lot of veterans complain about, you know, like we're not we're not wounded puppies, right? Even if we're wounded. So you you actually you in the essay and what I would I think of as as kind of a of a of a of a hopeful note, uh, and it, it ties uh, back together all this what we've been talking about. You you write that the divide between the civilian and the service member need not feel so wide. Why not? Right. Well, and and. Around that point, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about uh, the, the duties of American citizenship, um, and you know, I refer to uh, not just a, there's a speech that Teddy Roosevelt gave, um, which 
uh, I think in 1883, uh, which is a really interesting speech on the duties of American citizenship. Some, some, of, some of it is, is a little bit outdated. He thinks that uh, a good citizen should be both a good fighter and a good breeder um, and father many healthy children. Um, you know, that, that bit... Uh, I don't that bit I didn't quote in the essay, um, but the other the other part of it is just sort of it's it's really about rolling your you know rolling your sleeves up, um, becoming part of of institutions you think that are uh, you know furthering the cause of American democracy and and, and getting to work, um, and uh, when I was looking through uh, this sort of New Citizens Almanac. Uh, I realized that the the oath that I swore as a uh, as a Marine officer, right, to def, you know uh, defend the support and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Uh, that's an obligation of American citizens generally. It's not it's not the special obligation of of those of us in in the military, uh, which I, to my great embarrassment, had not realized until I was actually looking through that document. And you know, I think one of the things that it's really important to people about military service is the sense of collective responsibility is the sense of, you know, a group of people working towards a collective goal, um, and, uh, collective purpose. And, and, and theoretically that's something that we should share. Um, and so, you know, as I said, some, I, there are veterans who, uh, have gotten out of the military and done things that are directly related to their service, whether it's, you know, sort of, um, trying to fight for more action against uh, military sexual assault or whether it's, you know, uh, working, uh, you know, to aid um, refugees from the Middle East. Uh, and then there's some people who are just, um, who are focused on politics or education or, or any of a million other areas. Um, you know, sometimes uh, I get asked whether or not I think that we should have a draft and, and I don't, necessarily feel that we should have a draft, but I do think that, that uh, you know, some kind of, of national service in whatever field, whether it's the military or not, would be just a really healthy thing uh, and, and, and ought to be an expectation for every American. Well, Phil, on that note, uh, I want to thank you uh, personally and also on behalf of the team here at Brookings for uh, your excellent, amazing essay, The Citizen Soldier, Moral Risk in the Modern Military. It's a, it's a piece that I hope um, all the listeners will uh, immediately um, find uh, on our website and read and share and talk about. I think it's a very important piece for um, both citizens and soldiers and citizen soldiers to read and contemplate. So thank you. Thank you. You can learn more about Phil Cly on his website at philcly.com and read his Brookings essay at brookings.edu slash citizen soldier. And that's all for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria. My thanks to our audio engineer and producer, Zach Colzer, with editing help from Mark Holscher. Plus, thanks to Chris Anichi, Bill Finan, Jessica Pavone, Eric Abelahi, and Rebecca Beiser, Brian Smith, and our intern, Sarah Abdelrahim. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes and listen to it in all the usual places. Send feedback email to bcp at brookings.edu. And if you haven't checked out our brand new podcast, I think you'll love it. It's called Intersections. The most recent episode features a conversation with two scholars on global poverty. Find it on iTunes and on our site at brookings.edu slash intersections. 
Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.